0: I just want to say before we jump in this morning, so we're in this series from the, the Psalms. Uh, if I could just say, standing in the back of the room and seeing the number of you that are here, I sure hope you know that it, you're, I mean, of course you know, you're not obligated to be here. Uh, I, the number of you that are here this morning on, on a time when it's so inconvenient to be here and there's so many constraints, I just thank you. And frankly, that's one of the most encouraging things that's happened for me since March. At this awesome conversation, a couple of them actually this week, with a couple different leaders, and one of the things that is really starting to coalesce, is that the word? That's really starting to come together for me in my head right now is uh, that there are lots of reasons right now to stop doing this, and nobody needs me to create that list. Uh, but one of the things that's starting to make sense to me, and I'm really looking forward to exploring this next month, is that one thing I think that we can bank on is sometime in the future, uh, the the level of pent-up pain and suffering and anguish, uh, the marital issues, the parenting issues, the financial issues, like just the amount of crap that people are gonna have to work through and the degree to which they're gonna be deeply reliant upon wise people and God to lead them through it. For me, that's the reason why we persevere through this season. Uh, beyond what we get personally, That some, that there's going to have to be some places that look a lot like what this place did three months ago that are just there to capture and catch and speak truth and network people who, uh, N.T. Wright says, the amount of pent-up pain uh, we won't have seen since World War II where, where you just have deep amounts of grief that, that have to be processed. And so thank you for what, what you're doing and making sure that Because it's not lost on me, you don't need this for your survival, perhaps. Uh, But the degree to which we can keep this together, I think our opportunity to step back into serving people here, and I don't know, if it's six months or six years, who knows? But uh, I'm I'm as critical of church model and ecclesiology and some of those buzzwords like attractional church as anybody, but I'm pretty confident that healthy Christ followers. Who also live in community together are gonna, the, the value that they're gonna bring to culture here in the not too distant future is uh, beyond what we could possibly comprehend. So, we're in this series called Creatures of Struggle, and I think it's appropriate because you're probably feeling what I'm feeling right now, where there's this like, ugh, uh, it's just constant, and it doesn't really matter what party you come from or what your perspective on all this is. It, I've been reminded myself this week of where we started in March, which was there's a guy named Walt Brueggemann. I'm indebted to him this morning. The book that I'm going to point to is on the mind map. Uh, but he was the first one I heard point to this idea of orientation, disorientation, reorientation. And his conviction is that whether you're looking at the Scripture, we can go ahead and throw that up there, Holly. Uh, wh- whether you're looking at the Scriptures or, or you're looking at life or you're looking at both, that one of the lenses that we can see all of life through is this lens of where we're, nothing's ever static, is dynamic, that we're constantly moving from orientation to disorientation, or disorientation to reorientation, or reorientation to orientation, uh, but, but that life's always on the move, and as soon as you figure, out, you figure it out, you lose it again. And I don't know about you, but what's becoming apparent to me within this thing called COVID and this pandemic is that just even when you normalize within the new normal, you're reminded that even that can't be a constant new normal. And that makes me grateful that we're in this <coughs> series from the Psalms, because as we explored when we've kicked the series off on July 2nd, Psalms have never done much for me. I don't connect. I haven't historically connected well with them at all. Uh, But this morning, what we're going to delve into has really helped me get inside of them. And it's why I can say with integrity that, especially in March and April, the Psalms were vital for me. And it's not just because I was taking a class on it. But there's a narrative that began to make sense for me that helps me. Like yesterday when I opened up and read one of the Psalms. Because the idea that I think the Psalms are going to get at, so I don't have a lot of compelling story this week, kind of just some luxury stuff, and I'm only going to go 20 minutes, so hopefully that helps. But the, the observation that I want to make this morning, and you can play around with it and have conversation, and I hope you do, and decide whether or not it's helpful to you, is that what, what if the book of Psalms has an editor? And what if that editor is trying to tell her or his own story about the shape of life, and especially the shape of the life of faith? And the reason why I think that's important is, remember, we, we have 150 Psalms. If you're not familiar with this Hebrew book, this book in the Old Testament, we've got 150 songs. There's some fo- that poetry, song, prayer, lament, celebration. It's hard, there, there's not a single category. But what we know and that I don't think can really be debated is that the Psalms had multiple authors. What we know is the 150 Psalms that made it into the Hebrew Bible had more than one author. And not only did they have more than one author, while many of them are attributed to David, we can debate even which of those were actually attributed to David and which ones were written to David, like which ones were written in honor of David, which ones were written during his lifetime, which ones were written looking back on his lifetime. But even if we take away the David ones and go like, okay, all the ones that we give credit to David for, we give credit to David for, it still leaves us quite a few, I don't know the exact number, somewhere around a third, I want to guess, or off the top of my head, of Psalms that have multiple authors. And not only do they have multiple authors, they span multiple generations. In other words, the, the Psalms is not the Beatle anthology. It's not, an, and, and in some ways that's a good analogy, but, but in some ways it's not, because it's not one artist over one lifetime, over one set of circumstances, dealing with one highs and lows. It's, it's several artists over several lifetimes, probably in several different countries, And that means that at some point, and I think this is, for me, this is one of the keys of the whole psalm thing. At some point, we do have an editor or editors. At some point, somebody took the psalms, whether there was 120 or 145 or 200 or 3,000, we don't know, but at some point, some editor took the thing, right, like, mom died and now you got to go, like, what are we going to do with all the porcelain sheep, right, like, or, or, or this artist, this, this collector died, now what are we going to do with all this stuff? At some point, some editor took all of these psalms and put them in some linear book, so to speak. And to the degree to which that's true, what that invites us to do is similar to what we did on July 2nd, because on July 2nd I said, one of the invitations of the psalms is, is to go, God wants you to speak. Like he wants to hear from you and it's not important to him that he hears the sanitized you, it's not important to him that he hears the theologically correct you and that's not because those things don't have value to God, it's because God is secure. And while God wants to hear people, hear people talk about God and God wants you to think about God and God wants you to talk to others about God, God wants you to speak to God. That's one of the things from the Psalms. We get that from zooming out. But Walt Bruggemann he asked this other question. Okay, Psalm 22 has a theology. Jesus from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What, what's he referencing there? What's the theology of that psalm? And Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. What's the theology there? And Psalm 119, what's the theology of this deep passion for, for the text? What's the theology there? But if, if, if an editor, if this thesis holds true, if an editor or editors, a community, took this pile of psalms, and went. We're gonna we're gonna publish this thing. We're gonna put this thing in a book. We're gonna put it in a scroll. That means that somebody chose an order. They put it together. They chose the first one and a last one. And ultimately, what that would mean then is the the book of Psalms itself has its own story to tell. Does that make any sense? And what I want to do this morning is begin to try to ask this question: What what's What's the story that the editor, that the author's trying to tell us? And my, my inclination, and I'm indebted to Walt Brueggemann on this, is that what they're trying to do is portray life, the life of faith, that the shape of how the life of faith works. So let's just uh, try this on and uh, we'll, we'll go to the first psalm because if, if you're gonna make that claim that the editor had an agenda, then it would make sense that you see an agenda unveil quickly. Verse one, happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked Or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, that's a very straightforward black and white verse, right? What we're getting here is is these people don't hang out with the wrong people. They avoid unhealthy wisdom, if you will. That's probably oxymoronic. They avoid unhealthy people. Verse 2. But their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law they meditate day and night. So notice you're getting an A plus B kind of a formula thing, right? You're getting to avoid bad, consume the text. Like Notice that this, this person, not only is it their day, it's their night. So it's, it's both their vocation and their recreation, so to speak. But that word, the law, is also its own clue. And maybe this is too nuanced. Come, come back next week and we'll be less nuanced. But when, when you read the book of the law, that, that, that's a timed clue. Because what, what we know is that the, the, the book of the law, like Abraham didn't have it. So we can at least agree on that. But when, when when did the book of the law start getting referred to? Well, the answer in the scriptures is Hezekiah found it. But there's also an Old Testament agenda that says the book of the law in the priority for it was, written, was, was given priority in the text when? In exile. So I know this is a little weird. But remember, we talked about exile this last spring and this idea that in 586, Babylon, ba- Babylonia came and conquered Jerusalem. King Nebuchadnezzar saw to the demise of most people. He carried away the most educated, the most wealthy. We we don't need that yet. Oh yeah, sorry, you can leave that. I'm looking, I'm distracted. So so he took these people back to Babylon, back to the capital, and this, this is the orientation, disorientation, reorientation. They were completely disoriented. Everything they knew about life was gone. Their language, their religion, their temple, all of it was gone. And so what we know as the Hebrew Bible, really without a whole lot of debate, was put together in exile. The book of the you can ask the question why are they some, why do we, like why do we refer to the Jewish people as as Hebrews and Israelites, the answer is exile. There's a timestamp because Judaism it became Judaism in exile. That's when they discovered synagogue. That's when they became a people of the book. So the reason that's important is many editors would say then that Psalm one is probably an exile psalm. And probably what we have going on here is a psalm that was written by the editor. This is just one theory. It doesn't—you don't have to bank your whole faith on this—but it all helps it come together for me. Probably what you have in Psalm One is the editor or the editors have written an introduction to the rest of the psalms. And look at, listen how this introduction ends. So I shouldn't have closed my Bible. Verse three. Sorry, Holly. I, called you out when I shouldn't have called you out. Uh, they're like trees planted by streams of water which yield their fruit in its season and their leaves do not wither and all they do, they prosper. Notice, notice the emphasis given to human responsibility. Notice the lack of ambiguity, the lack of mystery. Like what, what to do can be known and how to get certain outcomes is known and it can, it, it, it can be implemented. Don't do A, do B, you get C. Now, what would be the value of this kind of a message to a people who lost everything they loved because of the story was they failed to listen to God, they failed to listen to God's people, they started listening to the wrong people, they lost everything, they ended up in exile. Now this generation has lived in exile, they've grieved what they've lost, they're trying to make sense of it, and they're headed back for the promised land. What would be the value of going, hey, hold on, just remember, your life is in your hands. You can choose life or you can choose death, blessing or cursing. You start to see this message is just permeated in the text. Why would a people who lost everything because of their disobedience have that message? Well, it's, it's obvious. But here's the good news. Because you, I don't know what your relationship with Psalm 1 is, if you're familiar or not. Mine is this. There was a season, season early in my following of Jesus where I loved Psalm 1. More recently, one of the reasons I fundamentally couldn't read the Psalms was because I found Psalm 2, Psalm 1, rather, to be incredibly simplistic and abrasive and frankly unkind. Why? Well, because it's the way life works. Like part of what we're grieving in leadership right now is you laid out a plan. It was a good plan. And something outside of your control has added crisis to crisis, is the way I heard one friend say it. But even if we go beyond COVID, you've seen this in relationship. You can not do the wrong thing, try to only do the right thing, and still end up divorced. You can only focus on the good thing, launch a business, apply all the principles, do everything you learned in college or from the book, and still end up with a failed business. You can go to the gym regularly, eat well, and still have cancer. What if part of what the Psalms are are doing, in other words, and what if part of what the editor is doing isn't trying to shove this formula down our throat, but rather exposing that the formula is both true and false? That it's both wise to start with this emphasis on obedience, but when you leave the, the simple world of the formula, you're quickly reminded that the formula is imperfect, that human control isn't universal, that you're not the only variable to the equation which would beg the question then, okay, so what am I supposed to do with my life? Well, what's the last thing the psalmist says? Because if Psalm 1 is thought to be a written introduction, some would say Psalms 146 through 150 are a written conclusion or postlude. Psalm 150 epitomizes those five. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty firmament, praise him for his mighty deeds, praise him according to his surpassing greatness, praise him with trumpet sound, praise him with lute and harp, praise him with tambourine and dance, praise him with strings and pipe, praise him with clanging cymbals, praise him with loud clashing cymbals, let everything that breathes praise the Lord, praise the Lord. By the way, that's the only psalm in the whole 150 that lacks um, motivation or reason for why. Why? What if this is a story about setting out to honor God and to establish for yourself a certain kind of life, and concluding that really the ultimate pursuit in life is to end with the sense that God is good, that God can be trusted, and what if what happens between the bookends is this perpetual up and down struggle, where people and what we get is that we are people, creatures of struggle. That the faith story has always entailed ups and downs and highs and lows and questions and answers. And this would be the invitation then that you you begin to open the Psalms yourself, and what you see is this ongoing story that these people were creatures of struggle. This is one example, Psalm 25. It's, it, admittedly, it's to the degree that this argument's true, Psalm 25 is a good place to support your case. To you, O Lord. I lift up my soul. Oh my God, in you I trust. Notice the formula. But then watch this. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. Uh, by the way, one of the permissions, uh, in my opinion and from what I learned, is that the enemies are metaphor. We, we in the, our Western mind, think that we dishonor God and everything else whenever we don't take something literally. But what we know historically is that part of the way that people related to the Psalms was just because David had a physical like enemy, oftentimes it was a guy named Saul, doesn't mean that your enemy has to be a person or someone trying to kill you, it can be something like cancer, it can be something like a pandemic. Like The invitation of the psalms is to see the enemy as a metaphor for the struggle that comes with the life of faith, the resistance that comes from trying to to be human in a healthy way especially. Do not let those who wait for you be put to shame. Let them be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. So notice what you're getting here is a psalmist who on the one hand is trying to claim the formula God, I want to honor you. I'm trusting in you. But they're struggling. There's resistance. But then look look where they actually turn. Verse 6. Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. What if the story of faith is a story where we begin to loosen the grip on the formula and begin to recognize that our hope isn't in the formula. It's not in the doctrine. It's not in the church. It's not in the person. It's in God. And, and the character of God, like the way I've been. I still haven't put it to words for myself. But but I feel like there. It's something like when I started reading the Bible some twenty years ago. I started reading it so that I knew what to believe. And I I I, I can with integrity say I still read it today, but it's because when I read the Bible I see how life works, like. When I started reading it, I, I, I wanted to see a God who, who knew what was true. Now, now when I read it, I see a God who knows where the tension is. And I think those are fundamentally different things. Do do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. There it is again. Remember me. For your goodness sake, O oh Lord. Remember, even Paul is unpacking that, that the the confidence we can have in, in God is because of the, fi- the faithfulness of Jesus, Like that God's character is such that God is faithful. In other words, this, and I, I'm not going to pretend to have more to say. I'm just going to give you a chance to think and sing your way out of here, but, but what if the story of the Psalms is a story of a god who wants your obedience he wants your commitment he there there is right and wrong but we leave the simplistic black and white formulas knowing that there's going to be real life and what we discover in real life is the only thing we really have to hold on to is the hesed that's the Hebrew word the steadfast love of god which doesn't require that we be able to diagram it perfectly it doesn't just require that we be able to describe it perfectly it means that we can point to the cross and say we, we, we can know decisively that this God is for us and we can trust this God to keep his word. So here would be the, the landing spot in, in my view, or at least here's one option. What if in just a moment you, you weld those first two principles together? If A, it's true that this God wants to hear from you, then what if you add to that, ironically, B, what's the area where where the formula's breaking down? What's, what's the area for you where you could just, in the solitude and silence of your own soul, tell God, I'm, God I, I, nothing makes sense to me, but I'm just clinging to who you are? And what if part of this, the faithful journey is identifying those moments and just going all in on, God, I think your character is ultimately good and I'm, I'm gonna rest in that. So I'm going to pray, and I I hope that it's not just transition for a band to get up here, but for you, an opportunity to take advantage of the little bit of silence and a little bit of anonymity and just, what's the one thing for you? What's what's one area where you could just say to God, God, here's the area where I think my attention has to turn to your character. Let me pray. God, Lord, thanks that we have this long history of people who struggled to make sense of formulas, knowing that ultimately the the only formula, so to speak, is is who you are. And God, I I thank you for the editors of this book, that they they did the hard work of telling a story of both things can be true. Uh, That we can take responsibility for our lives, that we can apply truth principles, that we can try to do the right thing and avoid the wrong thing and that that honors you and at the same time suffering and things outside of our control are inevitable and and those are the gateway to a life that ultimately just says praise the Lord. That's that's all I got for you. Praise the Lord. Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.